0: You're listening to Lozano-Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies.
1: Hi, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to discuss school resource officers and their place in our public schools. My name is Devin Lincoln, and I'm an attorney in Lozano-Smith's Monterey office. And with me here today are my colleagues, Tom Maniello, and Janelle Van Binsbergen. Tom, do you want to introduce yourself?
0: Hi, uh, my name Tom, and I'm in the Monterey office of Lozano-Smith. I work primarily in the student practice group and the labor and employment practice group. And relevant to t- today's conversation in the student practice group, I spend a lot of time working on student discipline issues, the interaction of law enforcement with school districts, SROs, search and seizure, and so forth. A lot of discipline reform work there as well.
2: Great. Okay. Thank you. Janelle? Good morning. Um, I am a partner with Lozano-Smith in the Fresno office. Um, I mainly work in the local government practice group, but I also work with labor and employment. And I focus on um, working with police officers, in particular police officers, both in the school settings and in the uh, city and county settings. Great. Thank you.
1: So, as I said, our topic today is school resource officers, which is a term we will probably shorten sometimes to SROs. Basically, I want to talk about officers who serve in schools. And the whole discussion, I think, is going to touch on issues between law enforcement and public education. Um, The first thing I'd like to ask about is what is the officer's Role in school. As I understand it, the police officer is either sometimes employed by a separate agency, by a police department, and sometimes they can be employed by the school itself, by the school district. So Janelle, I want to start with you. Can you talk about that? How is this assignment different for a police officer than what he or she might do in another capacity?
2: Sure. The It depends on how the police officer is employed. So for example, under Education Code 38,000, a school district has the ability to establish a security department um, or to establish a police department or to hire a, a what I'm going to call an SRO outside for, through another agency. So those are kind of the different situations in which you see um, law enforcement on a school campus. Um, if the school district has their own police department, they are required to fo- follow all the same rules and regulations of a normal police city or county police department, um, including ha- employing a chief of police who is in charge of that department. If they hire a SRO to come on campus to as part of their security force, then that individual must be a sworn police officer under the penal code. So either way, whether it's a school district, law enforcement agency or an outside law enforcement agency, these officers are sworn peace officers and have all the same obligations and duties whether regardless of who the employer is.
1: Okay. Okay, so I want to talk about search and seizure a little bit further on, um, but before we get to that topic, can you describe what would be part of one of these officers' daily work in
2: the school setting? Um, the police officer is there to enforce the law, just as they are in the cities or in counties. Um, so they may patrol um, a section. They may, um, you know, walk around. They generally would be called in um, to do investigations or um, regarding law enforcement matters by the school administration their obligation is the same as if they were a police officer on the street, whether they're employed by the school district or an outside agency. So they have all of the uh, same obligations.
0: And I think what Janelle just said there is a really important concept because a lot of school districts that I've worked with, they don't really fully understand that the officer that's acting as the SRO, whether it's a local police or a sheriff's deputy, remains a sworn peace officer subject to all of those legal obligations and has to comply with all departmental policies for the department in which they work not school district policies departmental policies for that officer and that's really important for them because they need to stay within the course and scope of their employment for their own protection so it's really important when you're setting up an sro agreement that The school district has a conversation with the appropriate person in the police or sheriff's department, and depending on the size, if it's a smaller community, that might be the chief of police. If it's a big county, it might be the lieutenant who's in charge of the SRO program. But you have to have a conversation up front about what are the goals of the SRO program so that the command structure in the department can have that policies in place to allow the SRO, the latitude that you want in your school. And that's really important when it comes to not prosecuting certain crimes that the SRO may become aware of and in the course of their their duties. Because normal rules in certain departments are, if the SRO, as a sworn peace officer, becomes aware of a crime committed in their presence, they're going to arrest or at least cite and release. And the school districts under discipline reform have been trying to decrease the amount of interactions between students and the criminal justice system. So for some offenses in some districts, like first-time marijuana possession, for example, they may not want the kid arrested. But if you have the SRO present when you search the student and the SRO is in the room and, and the kid comes up with vape pens that have the cartridges full of wax, you need to know at that point, is that SRO going to be required to arrest that kid or not? And you don't want to put your SRO in a difficult position of feeling like they have to act outside departmental policy. And the way you do that is you liaison with the command structure in that department to make sure that they know exactly what you want and they're okay with it. And that will avoid the school district losing control of student discipline cases and having them flow automatically into the justice system if that's not what they want.
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Tom. Janelle? Tom makes a very good point about the SRO's obligations to their own department policies and to the other laws that they're bound by. Um, in particular, uh, last year, a law was passed regarding the interrogation of minors, and it applies only to peace officers. So it's going to apply to SRO officers um, different than it would a school administrator. And the SRO, if they're in the room when you... in interrogate, you could be in violation of this law because what the law says is that a peace officer may not interrogate a minor 15 years of old or younger without first giving the minor the opportunity to speak with an attorney, either in person or by phone or video chat, um, and that obligation cannot be waived. A parent can't waive it, the officer can't waive it, the student can't waive it, and the school can't waive it. So when you're doing an interrogation of a student and a quick SRO or a peace officer is present, it changes the level of that interrogation. Great.
1: Okay, that's a great segue to my next set of questions. Um, But first of all, I just want to be clear that that we're talking about the difference between criminal conduct, which is what the peace officer is tasked with policing, Um, but that's different from student misconduct leading to discipline. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, Um, Tom, can we talk about, can you talk about some of the offenses for which a student could be disciplined in a school setting?
0: Sure. And the way California has structured that, when we talk about discipline for this context, let's talk about suspension or expulsion. Mm -hmm. Because if you're talking about less than suspension, they can be disciplined for almost any school rule of which they are made aware. Mm -hmm. But for suspension or expulsion, it's really the individual conduct listed in the education code at 48, 900 and following. And that is essentially where you find all of the charging statutes in the ed code. And it includes everything from uh, possession of a firearm down to uh, graffiti on the bathroom wall, right? It includes the possession of drugs, the sale of drugs, uh, fighting. It could be... Uh, harassing another student. It could be sexual harassment on campus. Of course, there's one of the major categories now that's been expanded quite a bit is bullying. And that bullying could be in person or it could be by electronic means. All of that is in the education code. And it's important to remember that a lot of the education code conduct for which students can be disciplined also may be a criminal offense. Right. For example, bringing a weapon on campus. And let's set the gun aside let's just say it's a knife if a student brings a knife on campus that is a penal code violation and there are lots of different levels of that depending upon the type of knife at issue and that's a good example of where a lot of times school districts want to deal with that only as a school discipline offense and not push the kid into the criminal justice system mm-hmm. so you need to have that conversation up front with your department before you get into that and but there's a lot of the conduct, like weapons, drugs, fighting, all of that can be both a discipline offense and a criminal offense.
1: Okay, thanks. Janelle, what are
2: your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, Tom is correct that it can be either. And so when a school administration is looking at the kid with the knife on campus, they also need to realize the moment they call that SRO, that SRO may be under other obligations due to his... Uh, requirements in his own department or by law to report that and make it criminal even though the school district doesn't want it to be. So even contacting the SRO about the incident could raise it to that criminal level.
1: Okay, so that I think that segues beautifully into my next question, which is this. Um, Can we distinguish between the powers that a school official has versus what a police officer has when they suspect a student of misconduct and that's misconduct that they might wanna discipline them for. Um, Tom, can you talk about that?
0: Sure. The courts here have basically gone out of their way to recognize that law enforcement officers have particular training in criminal law enforcement and the standards for search and seizure and school administrators by and large do not. Therefore, the courts have given school administrators sort of the benefit of the doubt on when these things happen, and they also recognize that because in the K-12 system, students are compelled by law to attend school, and therefore the school administrators have a duty to provide them with a safe school environment, that the school administrators have to have the power to implement that responsibility. Therefore, school administrators have the ability to stop and question anyone on campus at any time if they don't think that they're there appropriately uh, which is a little bit different than the law enforcement standard so if if a school administrator sees someone they don't recognize on campus or there's a kid that they believe is in the wrong place wrong time they don't need probable cause they can confront that person who are you what are you doing here why are you here that's all legitimate and depending upon what they hear if that school administrator forms a reasonable suspicion based upon articulable facts that that student might be violating a school rule or or the education code, then at that point, that school administrator is free to conduct a search within the scope of the basis for their suspicion. That is a lower standard than would ordinarily apply to law enforcement. And this is where we can get into some really interesting conversation about. When you have an SRO, to what extent does the SRO have to apply the criminal law standard versus the school standard in those interactions with students?
1: Okay, that's exactly the kind of conversation I want to have. Um, Janelle, can you start by talking about the criminal law standard, which is probable cause,
2: and, and what that means? Yes, the police officer would have to have probable cause to conduct a search, meaning they have to have some reasonable belief that a crime has been committed. Um, or some um, other basis in law to to conduct the search. Generally, it's that they have some belief that the crime has been committed or will be committed if they are not, uh, if a search doesn't occur.
1: Okay, so that's what we refer to as probable cause? Yes. Okay. Now, so how does that work for an officer who's serving in a school setting? Because they're bound by that probable cause standard. When they see the same scenario that a school official sees, do they think about that differently than the school official does? And and how does that play out,
2: probable cause versus reasonable suspicion? Janelle? So a police officer, as I said, remember an SRO is gonna have the same training as a normal police officer, a city police officer, county police officer. And part of that training includes identifying what is probable cause, how to conduct a search. And so that's their training. They are not gonna think of it like a school administrator. They're not gonna necessarily think, oh, we need to give the kid a break, they're going to be thinking this is a crime and I need to stop this or it's going to escalate. And police officers tend to have had experiences um, in that realm and dealing with a criminal element where that if they can't catch it early, uh, they can prevent a worse crime from happening. The uh, Typically, an SRO, um, like I said, is either employed by an agency or even in those instances where a school district has its own police force, those police officers that are hired by the school district because they have to be sworn police officers with training and post certificates, et cetera, um, typically are retired police officers or former police officers of another agency. So again, they have had years of experience dealing with um, the addressing criminal element, and that's how they look at it, even though they're on a school campus, typically.
1: Okay, and so how does this work in relation to the law that you were just discussing, the obligation of the SRO with respect to interrogating a minor. Um, um, if school administrators only need to have a reasonable suspicion to search, how does that apply to SROs and how does that actually play out? Tom?
0: Here the case law in California gives us some guidance and it it's a little bit different in California than some other states So I wanna just talk about here. Mm-hmm. The general rule in California is that if the SRO is acting at the request of a school administrator, then the school standard applies. That's the general rule in California and the appellate courts have confirmed that rule. If the SRO is acting completely on their own initiative or at the request of their department, it's a little bit nuanced the general rule i think is still that if it is a law enforcement initiated investigation and is not initiated by the school that the law enforcement standard will apply there is an appellate case in california though that talks about the specifically context of a full-time sro where this particular officer was his only assignment was at that particular school eight hours a day five days a week and in that particular case the sro saw conduct happening in the hallway of the school in front of him. And and because of that, he made the decision to stop and question the student. And then based on what he heard, the facts he gained in that interaction, he decided he needed to search that student and then ultimately found weapons on the student. The student then tried to have all that evidence thrown out in the juvenile court proceedings. And in that case, the court said, well, Because this is an SRO in a school context, and because this person only came across the information in their role as an SRO, we will allow the school standard to apply. So there is that unique nuance where you have a full-time SRO assigned to your site, and they only learned about it because they were doing their SRO duties. I'm not sure the same rule would apply if that SRO obtained the information, say, from a detective at the department, and then came on site to conduct the investigation. There, I think that nuance would change your outcome.
1: Okay. Um, Janelle, what do you think about that? And
2: to the extent that the SRO in that case was a full-time, eight-hour SRO, that's all he did, um, I have seen a number of agreements. And so Tom mentioned earlier it's important to kind of go through those agreements um, before you bring the SROs on campus and talk about these issues. This is a perfect example in that... um, a lot of times the agreements will identify that an SRO is going to be on campus, may not identify that individual by name, um, but that they'll be have an eight-hour person. It's usually someone who's assigned, and they're, you, that officer is usually the person on campus. However, if an incident was to um, occur in the city or the county that that officer works in, in that department, and it was like an all hands on deck call, that officer could be pulled away from the school site to go work in the department. And so to that extent, the more that happens, I think the less argument you can make that they are acting as a school official. So that's just something to keep in mind.
1: That's interesting. Okay. So earlier, you were both talking about the context of a school resource officer being in an interrogation. When do you make that call, and what are some of the scenarios where that becomes complicated?
0: This is Tom. I, I, I personally think, and I like to recommend to districts that I work with, that for routine school discipline matters, they really should be handling that with school administrators. And there are a couple reasons for that. One reason is because the SRO is a pretty expensive contract to have if the school district's paying for it. And you want to make sure you're getting the highest and best use out of that SRO for things that the SRO is best qualified or only qualified to do. And when you have, for example, routine student investigations where you just need to question students and there's no threat of violence, no weapon issues, no drug issues, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a misallocation of resources to use your SRO to do that. You know, I can think of examples where SROs I've worked with have complained to me because the school district calls them on the radio and asks them to go roust uh, an eighth-grade student out of bed at their house because they're truant and not coming to school. Probably not best allocation of resources yeah. at that point, right? Um, you know that might be better done by a home visit from a teacher or a home visit from a principal. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you you the other end of the spectrum, you certainly can have situations where you have students that are potentially violent or students that are potentially armed. And in that circumstance, it makes a lot of sense and might be very advisable to bring an SRO along with you when you go to talk to that student, because SROs not only are trained in the use of force, but they also have greater tools at their disposal for doing that. Mm -hmm. And you're much less likely to have a confrontation with a student if the SRO is standing behind you.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I can think of some scenarios like that. Yeah, um, Janelle,
2: do you have thoughts on that? Yes, um, the the difficulty becomes in the law that I mentioned earlier, in that the it's the police officer who has the obligation to require to allow the student to consult with an attorney. So, to the extent that the the student or someone later down the line, his attorney or uh, his or her attorney, what um, challenges what was learned from that conversation, that conversation may not be admissible in further criminal proceedings. That may not be specifically um, thought about when they're, the school district's doing the interrogation, but if it leads to something greater, if there's weapons or terrorist threats, then those are um, things that prosecution later may not be able to use if the SRO is standing there.
0: Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And, you know, If any of our listeners here watch TV and they've seen Law and Order, Mm -hmm. right? you've seen the episode where there's always a motion to suppress evidence and they're fighting about that in court. That's known as the exclusionary rule Mm -hmm. under the case law. And it's really important to understand that the exclusionary rule under California law does not apply to student discipline proceedings. So even if a school district were to come in possession of evidence or obtain a student statement, in violation of that student's Fourth Amendment rights, they can still use that evidence in a student discipline proceeding. The rule for the police in a juvenile justice proceeding is different. And so this is another reason you wanna have a conversation between the school district, whoever's in charge of that program, and your police department or your sheriff's department because that liaison will help you set up rules that you follow to make sure that if you have a serious event on campus and your school administration, let's say, interviews the student, gets the statements, doesn't just willy-nilly turn them over to the SRO without following certain procedures, such as a warrant or a subpoena, to make sure that the law enforcement can then actually use that in any subsequent criminal prosecution. So that, that, that interaction ahead of time can help avoid potentially um, derailing an important prosecution for serious criminal behavior.
2: Yes, and in addition to the law with regards to interrogations, a couple of years ago there was also a law passed regard with, for, related to police officer conduct, and that involves the search of, for example, cell phones. Uh, officers are no longer allowed to search cell phones uh, without getting a search warrant. And so um, to the extent an administrator searches a student's phone or gets pictures from a phone and then wants to give it to the SRO, the SRO may be prohibited from reviewing that information until they get the search warrant.
0: Yeah, And that's really, it's just an education issue because from the school side standpoint, you always have the ability to seize the phone and hang on to it until they get the warrant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can seize it and hang on to it as an administrator as long as you believe that if you have reasonable suspicion based upon articulable facts, that there's evidence of a violation of school rule or crime on that phone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if it elevates to the level necessary to inform law enforcement, let's say it's a drug dealing case, they can then go gather what they need, swear out their warrant, come back, take the phone. And right. that, that's a well-established procedure.
1: So the fact that they, the school official tells your their officer, I have this phone, I believe there's evidence on it, that's enough to justify the search warrant?
0: Well, that's a little more complicated. That, that's, enough, that's enough for the officer to begin the investigation. Mm-hmm. They'll probably need to swear out. And what I mean by that is they have to file a statement under oath with the court in order to get the warrant issued. And they will probably have to have, depending upon how much facts the school administrator can give them, they may need additional facts. Okay. They usually can get them. Okay. But there's no. what I'm saying is there's no problem with the school hanging on to that phone for 24 or 48 hours to give the law enforcement sufficient time to follow the required procedure.
2: Okay, got it. Okay. Janelle? That's, Tom makes a good point. The school district can hold on to it. Um, I I think from a law enforcement perspective, they would prefer that the district doesn't conduct the search for chain of custody issues, but also depending on what's on the phone. For example, if there's what could be considered child pornography on the phone, then it's illegal to be in possession of that. Now the officer can be in possession of it and hold it in their custody till they obtain the search warrant. But the school district certainly doesn't want to copy that for a disciplinary proceeding or something like that. Um, and so it, there's there's a lot of nuances to this this type of this, these searches, which we've kind of addressed some of them today. And Tom makes good points to that.
0: Yeah. And regarding the phone issue, I just recently did a training for SROs and some school districts here in Monterey County where we had a great conversation on this issue because so much stuff now that happens through a phone actually is then backed up or saved to the cloud. And so that conversation had some really great liaison between the SROs and the PPS and the school administrators responsible for discipline. because the SROs who were deputies in that context were explaining that, as Janelle said, they really would prefer that the school district not do a search of the phone because it creates issues of whether or not any data was accessed or modified and so forth. What they want the school district to do is make sure the phone is powered off, notify them right away, and then they will provide a special bag that runs electronic interference that you put the phone in. so. Mm-hmm. So because the student if they know what they're doing can go out onto the web and they can scrub everything off the cloud, but to the extent it's still resident on the phone if it's powered off and if you can't get signal to the phone, it's still saved on the phone. Well, that's right? Mm-hmm. So and and so knowing that ahead of time for these administrators was really important, yeah. right? Because now they can help preserve the evidence on the phone before it can be destroyed. And that's an example of the things you don't know unless you have that dialogue.
1: Yeah, that's great. Okay. So now I'm going to move on to a different topic. Can we talk about video? I know video is a hot button topic in law enforcement right now. Generally, when is it okay to monitor school grounds by video? And what other issues does that raise? Tom, do you want to start?
0: Well, strictly from a school standpoint, schools are able to put video surveillance anywhere on campus that doesn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. So for example, you would not be putting it in the bathroom. right? And there's a special ed code section that says you're not supposed to put them in the classroom uh, without the teachers and the site administrator's consent. So setting that aside, uh, most districts put all of their video surveillance to cover the external grounds outside the buildings and then the hallways of the buildings. And then if they have a big lunchroom or assembly room, sometimes they'll put them there, sometimes they won't. That video can become a student record under various aspects of state and federal law, FERPA. And the really important decision is at what point does it become a student record? Because once that video becomes a student record, your ability to share it with law enforcement becomes greatly restricted. Prior to it becoming a student record, if it's just live stream video, then it's not really much different than if the officer was standing in the middle of the quad. What they can see with their regular eyeballs, they could see by looking at the security feed of the camera that's looking at the quad. So I know some districts that have entered into agreements with their local police departments, where the local police department has the logon uh, ID and password for their security camera system, which is all over the internet. And then the agreement sets forth what circumstances they can use that. So if there's a school shooting or if there's a call for assistance at that site for example any officer that rolls up on scene would be able to log into the security camera footage for that site and they'd be able to see it on the screen in their patrol car before they even got out of the car and some of these schools have both day and night cameras Mm -hmm. so for the officer that's pretty useful or if there's a call for assistance let's say you have an alarm that goes off at the site at two o'clock in the morning when that alarm goes, if that alarm also triggers a response from law enforcement, your dispatch at law enforcement under the agreement might be able to log on to your security feed and and view the external premises of all your buildings to see whether or not there's someone running across your campus and which way they're going, which is really important for them when they're directing their response.
1: Interesting. So how does this play out in from the police officer standpoint?
2: Yeah, the agreement Tom mentioned with between the school districts and the local law enforcement agencies, I've, I've worked on those myself from the law enforcement side of course. And from the law enforcement side, they prefer that because they, for officer safety as well as to apprehend any serious issues, um, they prefer having the live stream video. There are complications if they don't have access to that. Um, the other thing to point, I would point out is that while it's a much, not directly on campus necessarily, but cities and counties have their own camera systems throughout the city. And to the extent that those can capture um, images on a school district, those may cause complications as well if they're saved or used later, um, because the law enforcement officers do not are not necessarily subject to FERPA as a school district would be.
1: So great. The last item I want to talk about is what Tom already referred to which is disciplinary form. Can you talk a little bit, Tom, about what that means and what we're seeing happening in schools on that issue?
0: Sure. This really, I think in California in particular, got its kickoff when UCLA published the data on how out-of-school suspension and expulsion rates were disproportionate for students of color, Mm -hmm. and that started a really big conversation in California that carried through to Sacramento. Sacramento then, in response to that, enacted several laws which started to implement discipline reforms. Uh, One one of the most notable being, you can no longer expel a student for 48900K willful defiance or disruption. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are other pieces of of it that go along with that. One of the things, for example, that they did was they removed the criminal penalty for not reporting certain things to law enforcement. In the past, the Ed Code used to require certain reports to law enforcement and made it a a crime if you did not. And now, the only vestige of that is Ed Code 44014, which still requires reports to law enforcement for any attack or assault or physical threat against a staff member. Uh, But other than that, the reports are controlled then by Section 48902, which is limited to um, pretty much weapons, drugs, and uh, Penal Code what, 245, I think, uh, which is a, a form of assault. And the idea was that there's this concept of a school-to-prison pipeline, where if students get pushed into this pipeline of, uh, of out-of-school suspensions and expulsions, then statistically they end up getting ultimately into the juvenile justice system and then the adult justice system. So to stop that, they were trying to start with an earlier intervention and have that earlier intervention be a non-out-of-school suspension and a non-law enforcement interaction. And a lot of schools in response to that didn't want to give up their SROs because the SRO serves a very valuable role in terms of the D.A.R.E. program, being a role model for kids on campus and also general campus security from the public not necessarily the students. So what they did is they started having the SROs perform a little bit less of the routine student discipline, which might result in juvenile justice, and performing more of their relationship functions with the kids. And again, this goes back to having a conversation with your chief or your lieutenant who's running this program as to what is it you want, right? Which is really important for them to know because it makes a difference in who they pick for your SRO. but that student discipline reform has led, I think, in my experience, to a, uh, a little bit of a shift in the emphasis of the SRO programs to where now they're walking around in the quad at lunchtime talking to the kids, getting to know the kids, trying to do a little bit more of an intervention role mm-hmm. prior to a reaction role once something has actually happened, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also, like I said, the DARE program, and things like that where the officers are doing that at the school sites.
1: That's great. Interesting. So we recently learned about a settlement between California Attorney General Bacara and the Stockton Police Department regarding some of those issues regarding alleged discriminatory treatment of minority students and students with disabilities. What do you both think that this settlement tells us about police and schools, um, about where we're going? Is it really reinforcing some of the things Tom just talked about? Does it have other lessons? Janelle, do you want to start there?
2: Yeah, I I think it really does reinforce what Tom just said, that the the minor, the role of the police officer at at the school site is really more for the major crimes and less for the normal, everyday student discipline issues. Um, The agreement itself even outlines things that would be considered minor incidences, and those would include... You know, use of profanity, defiance, disturbing the peace, dishonesty, um, loitering, possession of alcohol or tobacco. um, Those types of offenses um, should be handled by administration versus uh, the police department. And that will help with the concept of Uh, rehabilitation and not getting that uh, minor student into the criminal justice system. So
1: thanks. In closing here, I want to ask you both your general thoughts about when does this partnership between law enforcement and schools work well and when does it not or when can it work better? We touched on a lot of these themes already, um, but can you give me some final thoughts on that, Tom?
0: Sure. I think it works really well when the superintendent of the district or someone high enough up at the district has had the overarching policy conversation with someone at the department, either sheriff or police, about what do we want and who's the right person to do it. Mm-hmm. Because you, it, it, people are just people. You will have some SROs that are 100% law and order, they're 100% enforcement. And if what you're looking for is a relationship type person, that might not be the best officer for your school, right? On the other hand, if you're in a downtown urban area with a really high crime rate and a really high incidence of weapons and so forth, that might be exactly the guy you want. So you need to have a conversation about what is the goal of your program. Then once you have the people picked, once you have the SROs identified, and in some districts, they have one SRO per comprehensive high school, and that SRO only works that high school. Mm-hmm. In other districts, they have to split the SRO across multiple sites. It's oftentimes a budget issue, but whatever your model is, I think it's valuable, highly valuable, to have that SRO and those site administrators get some training and some opportunity to collaborate between themselves on how are we going to do things, mm-hmm. so that. Both sides know what the expectations are, and both sides have that ballet all set up in advance before an incident happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then having a good SRO agreement between the district and the department that talks about student records, it talks about use of force, it talks about which programs the officer is going to do, and, and, and all, all of the minutiae, I think really helps get your, your SRO program off to the best start possible.
2: That's great. Janelle, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with Tom that those conversations are very important, um, in particular to remember that most SROs, um, while this district and the, the superintendent or the chief can talk about who's selected or whatever, ultimately it is the chief or the law enforcement agency's choice, You, you know, unless you have some other agreement otherwise on who to place there. And the law enforcement agency has to consider their personnel their police officers and the rights that those officers have, um, which vary and are different than a school employee. Um, and to the extent that you want to remove an SRO because they're not working, you may want to have had how that's going to happen, that conversation on how that's going to happen ahead of time, um, due to the fact that there are certain laws that may prohibit a police department from just simply removing somebody from an SR program. So I, I agree with Tom wholeheartedly that those conversations and the intent and having that good agreement is the best way to go in these types of situations.
1: Thank you both. This has been this has been a really interesting discussion. Um, it touches on a lot of issues in the wider world and I really appreciate your time. Um, I learned a lot today, so thank you. Thank you.
0: It was great talking to you.
1: Thank you both. Thank you so much for tuning in to Lizana Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks and talk to you next time.
0: If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the host of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily
1: general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you
0: consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.